Hello and welcome to the IC Companies and Markets Show. My name's Ian Smith. I'm the company's editor of the IC. And joining me in the studio today, we have our sector's editor, Harriet Russell. How are you doing, Harriet? Yeah, good, thanks, Ian. Your last day before holiday, you looking forward to it? Oh, you know, breaking free. But <laughs> <laughs> Breaking free in a busy day. Just I before know, you're... we're going to, yeah, we're going to get onto that. We sure are. Everything going on in the world of retail. We also have our specialist writer, Megan Boxall. How are you doing, Megan? I'm very well, thanks, Ian. And you've written the cover feature this week about the NHS. Yes, it's very exciting. You know how to fix it. I do. So we're very much looking forward to that. Uh, so in this podcast, we're going to talk a lot about retail. Then we're going to talk a little bit about advertising and marketing with reference to WPP uh, and other things going on in the advertising world. And then we're going to talk a little bit about healthcare uh, towards the end. So let's kick off with retail. The big news today being Thursday was a profit warning uh, from DFS. Didn't come out in time for us to write about it in the magazine, but it's really interesting this morning. Uh, Harriet, what is going on? We had seen some sort of pressure starting to spiral in this kind of part of the sector for a little while now, maybe three or four months. We'd had a couple of updates from the likes of Tops Tiles, who had started to hint that they were seeing a drop off in demand. But it was sort of isolated incidents. And although Tops Tiles itself had a bit of a negative share price reaction, it wasn't something that was coming across the board. If anything, I was I was sort of pleased to see a lot of the retailers saying that demand was holding up this year. Well, Unfortunately, DFS has turned that completely on its head this morning. Big profit warning from them. And I would say it's one of the most explicitly worded statements I've read on the issue year to date. And it has sent the shares there down by a quarter in early trading. They were down around a fifth. It was very very negative about footfall. Mm Mm-hmm fewer people going to DFS um, and linked it explicitly to the macroeconomic environment uh, and, and particularly the domestic political environment. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. It was one that we were debating this morning about how fair that was. And actually, Is it an excuse would be the question that John Human, our editor, were he here, would, would ask. Is, is this an excuse for something we knew anyway, which was the consumer economy is deteriorating? Yeah, it's it's a really good question. And actually, I've um, I've had a word with Majestic Wines this morning because they've had four-year results out as well. Um, and they've been sort of hit from the knock-on effect that this particular profit warning has had a, across the whole sector. And, uh, and the chief financial officer, there, um, James Crawford, a very interesting point of view and one that I largely agree with, which is that in order to blame the political and thus economic sort of consequences of that, it's fair enough in a bottom line sense, because obviously the vote to leave the European Union political decision resulted in the significant depreciation in sterling that we've seen for almost a year now and that has a very tangible and very obvious effect on the retailers cost base most of them are importers in order to sell their products domestically and that has a huge huge effect on their cost base their margins and thus their profits however if you start blaming it for a top line deterioration, that becomes a little more problematic because that implies that there is something to do with your products that is not inspiring people to spend money. And a lot of people on social media, Twitter and stuff this morning were saying, oh, you know, you can't blame Brexit, you can't blame the election. Just because there's an election doesn't mean I don't go out to the shops and buy clothes or even sofas or a new iPad or whatever it might be. Um, That is not reason in itself. It's just that people become more discretionary with their spending and they save it and they spend it on things that they think are worth it. And that suggests to me that um, 
DFS has to kind of clear this issue up for us in the long run. It's uh, Phil just- Oakley, just to say, Phil Oakley, a well-known investment commentator who sometimes writes for us, tweeted, politics never influenced my shopping habits. If I need a new sofa and I can afford it, I buy one, um, which a couple of people liked. He then tweeted, after, a ye- after years of maxing out on credit, buying stuff they don't need, a significant proportion of our potential customers are skint hashtag dfs uh, which kind of feeds into a kind of slightly different thing about like the way that their customers buy but i suppose what i could say back to you is that yes there's the political backdrop but there's also the economic backdrop in terms of where prices are relative to where earnings are and that's somewhere where it can have an impact on people's ability to spend and thus the top line yeah absolutely i mean this is what mr crawford was getting at really was that inflation is a real thing you can't you can't blame the retailers for trying to find a, a an easy way out of that a lot of them have had to raise prices and yeah i suppose that might deter people from the top line but as um phil Oakley says you know just because something is five quid more expensive if we're talking about discretionary items which is um sort of the category that dfs and other general retailers fall into it's probably not going to be enough to turn people off shopping altogether we have though had some interesting retail stats out today which suggest there is a wider problem yeah i mean the wider problem is that people will still shop and they will still spend money on things but they won't do it nearly as often or in the quantity that we've seen in the last few years post-recession and that was really supported by data from the ONS this morning about the retail sales volumes for May which were down a lot of people had expected them to fall but not this dramatically so the sales yeah down 1.6% in May it was expected to be around 1% Mm -hmm. Uh, it was plus 2.2% in April Mm. Can we focus too much on monthly figures? Absolutely. I mean, it's been one of the real bugbears of covering the sector since we voted to leave um, the EU last year is that everyone has been absolutely glued to either ONS data, BRC data, um, any data really that's going to give us an indication of where we're at. For instance, last year, everyone was rejoicing that we had a very, very good November. The advent of Black Friday sales and things here had really sort of inspired the nation to get shopping. And that sort of dried up over Christmas, perhaps not that unusual because we knew that price rises were coming by this point. However, we had a fairly buoyant January sales period and a fairly buoyant April. And, you know, why are people shopping in April when things are more expensive? What we had today, I suppose, was a double whammy of the Mm. DFS um, profit warning which, as you say, included very negative signs that people were looking out for to do with footfall. Um, And we also had the ONS data that seemed to bear it out, albeit just over that month period. And we did see a big sell-off in the retail stocks, didn't Mm. we? So it wasn't just DFS that went down. Looking at it um, at about um, kind of mid-afternoon, the second biggest faller within the clothing or general retail sectors, Danelm and other furnishings and and another retailer. Um, Next, uh, next next (laughs) and then um, you know m brown dixon carphone other types of retailers in there that people think really will suffer if the consumer economy is stalling yeah i mean another thing that um mr crawford and i talked about majestic was it's it's fine to pull out big trends and i think shore capital this morning really called it a watershed moment for retail today um which is perhaps getting a bit dramatic it's you know um but I, th- I think there's an interesting sort of caveat to, po- to put on this, which is if you look at some of these big fallers, particularly people like Next and Dixon's Carphone and certainly AO World, actually, Marks and Spencer, the common theme with all of those companies is that they have very specific problems within their businesses already. 
problems that have been well flagged by this point. Some of them we've got on buy tips in a sort of contrarian, recovery yeah. contrarian sense. Some of them like AO World, we don't. Um, some of them we're completely neutral on like Denelm. So I would really insist that readers or listeners go and look at the individual kind of buy, sell or hold cases that we have on those various stocks. It's it's fine to draw out trends and say, yeah, okay, this profit warning has had a huge knock-on effect on the sector. But actually, that doesn't necessarily mean that going forward, which is like the always the most important thing in retail, um, that those businesses are only on a downhill slope. There is going to be a concern, though, among our readers and listeners that, you know, which which of these companies is next um, in the sense that you don't have to have that much negative content in either an outlook or in a full year trading update to really Mm. hit the shares because people are looking so much for these kind of negative indicators. Mm -hmm. So are there any particular companies where you think are they particularly vulnerable to a further down um, shift in sentiment? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to pull out individuals because Mm. anything can go wrong um, at any time. Majestic actually serves as a wonderful example here because they just had a very specific mishap in the US last year, which resulted in a big profit warning for them today and a pre-tax loss reported today. Um, And we'll be analysing that in next week's magazine. Yeah, we will be. Um, But... So it's hard to say, oh, this person will be next because I'm sure there are there are hidden profit warnings all the time that you don't see coming. That being said, um, I think what is possible to do is to pull out some of the more vulnerable product categories. Um, and that is taught to us um, from the, the last recession, mm. what, what did badly then and what did better. Um, I, would, I would expect companies with sort of more discretionary items. So we're talking um, middle market clothing retailers. I'm going to exclude luxury and I'm going to exclude fast fashion because both of those did have done well in harder times but yeah and even jewels um and we'll come to talk a little bit about jewels but that's one of the only two stocks um that's really in positive territory from these two subsectors that we're we're um, looking at here i mean it's only fractional it's basically flat but that's uh it's been a bad day for the market so that's actually it's been a bad day yeah but i think jewels sits at a very interesting in a very interesting part of the clothing sector um for me it sits in what we generally called premium lifestyle. So we're not really talking luxury, we're not talking Burberry or Mulberry, but what we are talking about is Ted Baker, Supergroup, um, the ones that do distinguish themselves from middle market, um, a little bit through price, but ultimately through product quality. Um, and for us, that's where Jules sits. The, the unfortunate- you've actually included them, we can say, because it will be after uh, markets close on Thursday, uh, but you have included them as tip this week, Jules. Yes, I have. I mean, the problem with this part of the sector is that the stocks are very expensive. Mm. Um, I've been bullish on jewels ever pretty pretty much ever since they listed um the tone of the writing has always been very positive but trying to get into that stock has been has been difficult since float and ted baker and supergroup are um not really exceptions to that rule either but really if you're trying to bet on retail this year it's incredibly high risk um you do expose yourself to um profit warnings margin squeezes and uh, and these are the sorts of companies that we think might be able to navigate that. And uh, you also mentioned fast fashion. That's an area where valuation risk is real and present. Um, Boohoo, there's an interesting story that you've written this week talking about their new super site and more automated warehouse they're planning to build. Um, tell us a little bit about 
why that's interesting? It's interesting because they um, made two very important acquisitions last year. One was a related party transaction with Pretty Little Thing, which was run by a family member, and also Nasty Gal, which was a US business that had gone into administration. And since buying those businesses, the demand has pretty much been off the charts for Boohoo. I yeah, mean, the, the growth, update, yeah. yeah, the growth numbers are just absolutely insane. They just sort of <laughs> don't even bear any relation to anything else in the sector. Um, and in order to cope with that demand, they're going to have to build out more. Um, factories and warehousing and distribution capabilities in order to serve their customers um, and they'd already sort of announced investment in their Burnley site but they're going to start this new uh, super site which is going to span 600,000 square feet and I suppose the really newsworthy item about it is that they are going for a higher degree of automation which is a touchy subject um, in retail because it implies this sort of Amazon drone model um, that although it's very exciting for the sort of tech people amongst us to think about a world where that is a reality um, it doesn't do much for the um, political commentators who get on about jobs and But there are good jobs and bad jobs and uh, we've seen with the fast fashion, not uh, Boohoo but ASOS, we've seen concerns around the conditions in some of the warehouses and that's also been well flagged. So yeah. does this help Boohoo manage that risk? I think it was definitely, it's difficult to when I had a call with management it's difficult for them to say anything explicitly about that. I think mainly because um, the allegations at ASOS and also Sports Direct are just that. They're allegations, so they're sort of limited in commenting too heavily on it. But yeah, the suggestion is definitely there that they want to avoid any sort of malpractice or, or corporate governance issues in that respect. And this might be one way to avoid it. It's interesting, um, just to kind of round this off, that in this day of a lot of retail news, and we've been having lots of discussions um about it and you're going to be writing a story about your takeaway for the sector before you <laughs> go off on holiday um but it's interesting that we've also had an intention to float from a fast fashion retailer quiz quiz yes um the exciting thing about quiz is not so much what they're going to be doing because to be honest it's all fairly run-of-the-mill type clothing 16 to 35 year old target market blah 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 um but the, the reason it piqued my interest is that peter cowgill is going to serve as their potential chairman um and people might know that name from jd sports where he is currently executive chairman as well and that should reassure because i suppose some people that are looking at this uh, company would say well they've actually got quite a large store estate mm-hmm. and that's something potentially i don't want so much from a fast fashion retailer and given the challenges that we've talked about with footfall uh, and the other risks to the high street and the costs um, of employing people um, but someone that has experience in running a high street estate uh, effectively uh, could be good. Yeah, absolutely. It hasn't held JD Sports back at all. And actually, I would um, direct people to a piece I wrote earlier in the year for the sector focus section of the magazine about this very kind of, um, I call it the fidgetal opportunity, which was sort of this marriage between online and um, physical store estates, which isn't anything new, except that we have generally seen it work in only one way, which is that, I don't know, someone like Next or Debenhams tries to take their business online. And what we're actually seeing more of now is the reverse, which is online retailers seeing some sort of value in having a physical store estate. Um, it'll be interesting to get to, to know these guys better. I admit I don't know that much about them yet and sort of which way around they did it or whether they did it all at once. Um, or whether they can even float at all if uh, the retail market falls off. A- yeah, it's not due until July. It's, it was an interesting day to announce their intention to float. Um, yeah. I don't know if they if they knew really what was coming. I doubt it. But um, but yeah, we'll see how that one goes. We're, uh, we're kind of holding off because they haven't priced it or anything yet Mm. um the only thing i do know is that the company is profitable it makes a pretty decent cash profit so that'll be interesting to uh keep an eye
style. And I just want to flag our credit cycle podcast that you put together, Harriet, because that's also relevant to this. The end of the consumer credit cycle is what some people um, diagnose um, and in some ways Phil's tweet um, kind of speaks to that, right? People are concerned that the consumer economy has been propped up by credit um, and your podcast delves a lot deep, more deeply into that and the companies that could be affected. Yeah, I mean, if anything, it, deeps, it dives less deeply, I suppose, in that we actually take a much more big picture view on what is happening with the sort of macro pro factors um, globally, in fact, between US and China and into European banking as well, as to exactly what the vulnerability is and what could go at the top level, which would ultimately dry up um, at the consumer level in the UK. Okay, fascinating. Look out for that. Uh, Megan, I want to bring you in. Now, let's move from retail to talking about advertising uh, and marketing. WPP, uh, the major global company within that space, um, always hogs the headlines. Um, It was earlier in this month that they had their trading update, but you've done a longer analysis piece for this week's magazine talking about the investment case for the stock and how you think it's changed. To give us a bit of an overview about where you're at with WPP. Um yeah, so WPP had a there was an AGM trading statement, which was well, there was a lot there was a lot of politics in there, as uh, as you might expect from Martin Sorrell. Um, and some strange comments. I've got some, some very you, strange comments. You pointed out to me, uh, given the macroeconomic background, this is what they say in their trading update. It is not surprising that clients are generally grinding it out in a highly competitive ground game, rarely resorting to a passing game or hail marys. Yeah, as a uh, <laughs> non US sports fan, I had to um, ask for clarity about what that meant. <laughs> but what, once you'd kind of dug through, um, yeah, the narrative, what yeah, was your take? It makes for great reading i mean i'd I'd recommend reading some martin sorrell's uh trading statements they're always entertaining but um yeah he in general he's actually quite negative which i find very unusual for a ceo to be so negative about the sector that that it's his own company's operating in there are just so many challenges that facing marketing and advertising companies and wpp as one of the world's biggest and far and away the UK's biggest, I mean, it's got no real UK competitors, is, yeah, right in the right in the centre of all those challenges. So he talks about competitions fierce in our industry, yeah. uh, a lot of people, a lot of providers undercutting each other. He says, as some say, you are only as strong as your weakest competitor. Are they suffering from that? Yeah, well, uh, I mean, I find that a, like an interesting <laughs> analysis, especially when WPP has a knack of just buying its competitors. Um, but he's his argument there is that marketing is a value-added proposition. And at the moment, what he's saying is that there are a few of of WPB's competitors which are starting to cut costs, operate in sort of a um, we're going to save you money sort of way rather than you need to invest in what we do as a value thing, which completely undermines what advertising is and what (laughs) what the industry has grown off. So by saying that some competitors are cutting costs. He he actually says that our industry may be in danger of losing the plot um, if uh, if they forget about their their value added roots. And another difficulty and theme here is the rise of social media. Mm. That businesses, if they're looking to advertise and market, can go more directly to customers yeah, exactly. and reach a huge addressable audience. Yeah, exactly. And without WPP, yeah, it's addressable and it's easy to use as well. I mean, Facebook ads are so much easier than what you used to do, where you were buying ad space on television or in a newspaper. It required so many more people than marketing. And what is actually the most effective type of marketing today it's not like it's the most cheapest the the cheapest type of marketing um facebook or google it it is just the most effective which is why people are going for it and there is an argument that that is it's easy so 
people will won't need to even use advertising agencies anymore. You could have an internal team yeah, exactly. and then go straight to Facebook or yeah. Google. Yeah, exactly. But what do WPP say? Like, wh- Where do they sit? WPP um, actually aren't particularly... They don't really address that as a problem. They think that they're going to be in demand regardless. And they are actually realigning their portfolio to be more digital. They're about 40% at the moment. They're aiming for higher. And um, and it, it is the opinion of the wider industry, people who work in marketing, say, saying that actually it's very complex to um, run an effective ad campaign on Facebook or Google. It may be easy to just put your ad there, but to make it effective, um, that's harder. And that requires specialist knowledge, more specialist knowledge, and actually also specialist software, which um, WVP and its competitors have really been investing in as well. So that's an argument that it's it's just another channel, that there's always been evolution in the channels. Exactly, yeah. And marketing, advertising has been around since the dawn of humans. I mean, there's always been people... There's always been a Don Draper. (laughs) Um, And, uh, yeah, so it's not going to go away. But Sir Martin Sorrell is going to go away at some point, and that's something that investors um, are very focused on at the moment. Yeah, exactly. They... um, after the trading statement, after the AGM last week, there were a couple of um, big shareholders who actually made a statement saying that um, WPP needs to find a successor and have a successor in place for the time Martin Sorrell, who is 72, um, decides to step down. And actually, their concerns are that if he decides that he wants to step down, he can just do it. He doesn't even need to give a notice period, mm. which is um, which is why they're worried, uh, which is fair enough. But I mean... He seems to love it. Um, I, I, I'd say he's going to go on forever until he absolutely can't anymore. 72 but, is very young these days. But I mean, is, yeah. uh, having that person at the top, obviously they lost a big contract. Uh, was it last yeah, year? AT&T. AT&T and also Volkswagen. Yeah. Two, two really big contracts. But then the argument, on the other hand, is that it's not really Martin Sorrell who's making those contracts. I mean, he's not even an advertiser. Or, I think he's an accountant. He is a fantastic CEO and he has built this company from wires and plastic or whatever it used to be called but it he he isn't necessarily the person who's winning or losing these contracts but he is the the driving force behind wpp um but he's kind of roger sterling rather than don draper in the analogy (laughs) which is but he i mean he's got a lot of clients with him no it's absolutely fascinating i do recommend everyone to read uh, megan's piece it goes into a bit more depth and it's really absolutely yeah i mean there are just so many challenges and Mm. which have been flagged today as well by the fact that um sky and virgin media have decided to um collaborate in their ad strategy and they're going to be working together to do targeted ads which is another thing targeted ads is just such a massive growth area and And they explicitly reference social media that their combined scale in terms of the ordinary people that they can reach um rivals that of kind of social media channels yeah which is an interesting thing to say because i mean everyone uses facebook everyone uses google for sure um and they've come up with this figure what was it, 30 million? Yeah, is it yeah. over, yeah, but it was kind over of... Over a long period of time. I mean, where are they plucking that figure from? But I suppose knows? the basic thing is they, they're thinking for us to have a compelling proposition, we need to scale up. Yeah. And that's the way, and also we can kind of target in the way that you're describing the customers. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it, it, means, it seems sensible. The newspapers are trying to do it as well. Mm collaborating in the advertising market because it's so challenging um but yeah if that does that create more challenges for wpp that means one customer rather than two if sky and virgin media are both using using their services before and if the newspapers all collaborate to do their marketing together that they're losing a lot a lot of customers i mean wpp is just 
it's just changing and sounds like yeah. another feature in the works at some <laughs> point okay um let's move on to talk about the nhs because i'm mindful of time so this is the kind of subject that you can't really talk about in 10 minutes but we're going to try anyway what's really interesting about the context of your piece is that obviously we have this uncertain political backdrop right now uh, but the nhs continues to be a huge political issue as it was in the 90s as it's really always been when it's a crisis has been diagnosed in the nhs around the level of spending what you've done in your piece which i think is really useful is stepped away from the uh, kind of political side of things to say what is actually going on what is the degree of private involvement in the nhs um and how might that change so what the company is involved um because a, a point you make is that there has been private involvement to extent in uh, NH in the NHS since its very inception. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's something that sometimes people forget when they're talking about privatisation of the NHS. That is a private element to healthcare in the UK, regardless of whether or not your GP is run by an NHS trust or is run by a private provider. I mean, that throughout its history there's been an element of independent companies operating within the nhs which isn't or even or even uh, private um profit yeah nye bevan uh, when he founded it said i stuffed their mouths with gold referring yeah. to kind of consultants who are allowed to keep private practice and gps which could continue to be run yeah, kind so of he small was businesses to persuade the exactly. doctors to work for the nhs because it wasn't a very popular idea amongst the doctors at, and um, then a few years later prescriptions they had to make people yeah, pay so for they had to um they had to start making people yeah exactly it was three years before they started making people pay for prescriptions and glasses which i mean looking at it now it seems ridiculous to suggest that people didn't ever have to pay for their prescriptions in the early days of the nhs there are stories of people getting their wigs free on the nhs i mean it's crazy that and people were taking advantage of it. and there's an argument of that that's still happening today i mean people overuse the doctors for sure and maybe if there was an element of paying for it that wouldn't be so much the case, but that's another whole argument. I mean, what we're what's, what's fair to say is that since that point, the private sector involvement in the NHS has ramped up oh, yeah, into definitely. lots of different areas. Yeah. And you try and address those areas. What what are uh, ones that you found particularly interesting in terms of where private companies currently operate and where that might change? So one that um, I think the, the first one that is really interesting is the staffing because it's a bit of a political topic at the moment because the NHS is um, in the world. The government is in the process of selling NHS recruiters, which is the biggest recruiter into the NHS. Um, and it looks like it's going to be bought by Staffline, which is a listed, a listed recruiter. And I mean, it's, it's a no brainer for someone to want to buy this business. It's profitable. It's got a hugely fast growing revenue stream it's got a solid revenue stream because it's paid for by the government why it's got a go- little brexit headache <laughs> yeah. Tracks, potentially. yeah that's true but um why the government wants to sell it i'm not really sure because of all the parts to sell why sell your profitable bit i mean that is something that i'm not really sure i understand but aside from that there are so many recruiters who are already private recruiters who are already involved in helping recruit people into the NHS. It's the fifth biggest employer in the world. Mm-hmm. It's going to need help with recruitment. It's just it's just an interesting space which seems to be looking to be slightly more independent sector involved. And you can only see that increase. And another one that I thought was really interesting uh, was property. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there's already a few listed companies where mm-hmm. you can get access to property, um, particularly primary healthcare, where it's badly needed to reduce the strain on hospitals. Yeah, exactly. So um, it's, a, it's a really great sector to be in, actually, <laughs> at the moment. Um, 
being a property provider to the NHS because um, the government is really trying to increase the amount of, well, the scale of GP practices. Actually, they're trying to lower the amount, the number, but making them a bit more capable with responding to emergencies and just trying to take the pressure off A&Es, which, as we all know, if we've watched the news ever, <laughs> the A&Es in the, A&Es in the UK are under a huge amount of pressure. So they're trying to expand and, and actually make them more fit for purpose. About 40% of current GPs practices in the UK are not fit for purpose. There needs to they need to be updated. And in being updated, there is this opportunity to take so many costs out which at the moment are crazy how many costs, how many extra costs we have, how in tech, in thing in staff, in so many things that are are not run very efficiently at the moment. And if we make our GPs practices bigger and better, we're going to be taking costs out of the NHS. But then they are private companies that are going to benefit from that because mm. they're going to be getting more rent from the government. And we actually featured um, Primary Health Properties in a boardroom talk uh, podcast recently. Our colleague Jonas Crossland spoke to them. So do scroll down in the feed and you can Yeah, it's a, a really read. interesting company. Uh, along with its peers, which are Medics Fund and Assura, the, all three of them Jonas has on a buy rating because the same reason that Staffline wants to buy NHS recruit, recruiters, it's just a, it's a great business to be in at the moment. Now, something else that I find quite interesting is software and how mm. software can be used to yeah. improve the efficiency of the NHS. And there's um, a couple of listed companies um, that are you know, active there. What's your take about um, how actually useful these companies are to the NHS uh, over the long term? Because obviously it's very expensive to go through transformative IT programs. That's the thing. And that's the main issue with this whole sector. Initially, it's going to cost. And I mean, the government doesn't really have that money at the moment to be spending big on updating all of its software. But we've seen recently that the NHS needs to update its software. Exactly. When it got hacked, it was hacked because its software was old and because it hadn't updated the systems. Had it updated the systems, it wouldn't have been hacked. And we don't know what the costs are, but it was definitely a weekend of panic for people who needed their health checked. And actually we saw with Sophos, their shares rose mm. really highly on that as a provider of um, cybersecurity to the NHS. Yeah, which uh, I found quite unusual because you'd have thought that when a company's one of their company's clients is hacked, that wouldn't reflect very well on them. But <laughs> it uh, unless it's because people weren't using the latest patch, I suppose the argument yeah, goes, or that they were using, <laughs> or they were using an old version of Windows, yeah. you know, which I suppose can't. But at this point, and I see that you see that with a lot of these um, companies. Um, there's a secure payments company. Oh, I lose it. That. Um, that were saying this the other day as well there are there are trends that are negative for their clients that are obviously positive for them yeah, this yeah. is going to become increasingly important um for the nhs over definitely. time as things become more digitized yeah definitely and all the other thing is um data sharing i mean that was the problem which was why the nhs got hacked so easily they're trying to share their data but if they can share their data and um, so the private companies again so emis and ideagen they they're two companies which are making it easier for doctors to share data which extracts costs again and then in larger scale technology as well in mri scanners outsourcing to companies like medica who do mm. the um so they're radiologists they, they, so they employ radiologists but the idea behind the technology is that it can be done really instantly they can take their scan they can send it out to the radiologist who can process it really really quickly much quicker than it takes for at the moment which is almost printing it off it's a really labored um experience at the moment but using the, all the advances in tech, which just are phenomenal compared to how the NHS is at the moment. That looks a bit more fundamental. You make this really good point around how inefficient it is to get a 
simple blood test mm-hmm. via the NHS and the amount of stakeholders involved in that. Yeah. Uh, and then you mentioned a couple of companies involved in helping monitor um, people. Um, so ideally keeping them out of hospital if yeah. they don't need to be there mm-hmm. or providing a more up-to-date um, or immediate um, diagnosis. Yeah, point-of-care diagnostics is a huge theme and actually um, it's already being used in a lot of countries in Canada if you go for uh, to have a blood test. They literally take your blood test there and then and they give you the results there and then. I mean, that's one person in five minutes who can tell you if you've got tonsillitis or not. Um, but when we do that, this in the UK, I mean, it's about a week and then quite often on the other side of things and that this then feeds into how much we're spending and how much we're relying on antibiotics i mean there are so many factors at play (laughs) which can be helped by point of care diagnostics and yeah again there is private companies um who are developing this technology and which can help sort out some of the fundamental problems with our private health well yeah so it's, it's beyond debate that there are private companies that are working with the nhs um uh, the question is how much will that change in future the big caveat yeah. i suppose is that the political backdrop as i said is very uncertain yeah. it, say we had an election within the year uh, our major opposition party has talked about renationalizing the nhs behind that it seems to be around Uh, the NHS being the preferred provider for care or Mm -hmm. perhaps stepping back from the GP commissioning. Mm -hmm. Uh, But even then, it's not been been a huge amount of detail about the the plans. Uh, And regardless of, uh, you know, what kind of more stable government we have over time, there's a big funding challenge that's almost separate but uh, connected to this. Exactly. And so it's interesting there how the Labour government talk about... um, stopping um stopping using private providers to for for different types of care which they are doing increasingly um and the some of the private hospital providers such as spire have been really benefiting from that but the other way that they've been benefiting is from the amount of people who are choosing to go private and actually pay for their own treatment because they just can't afford nhs waiting times which are ridiculous they're not they've scrapped the um 18 week waiting time target that we've got 3.9 million people on the waiting list that surprises me that that isn't more of an issue uh, given that um i'm just about old enough to remember that that was an issue back in 97 and it was very much the actual waiting times was used hugely by tony blair led uh, opposition labor party to make their pitch for how bad a state the public services had got yeah. under conservative government and you, it's interesting that it's it's not higher up the agenda obviously there's a lot more going on but whatever party remains in office or gets into office mm. just a huge amount more money needs to go into exactly. a lot yeah. of the different parts of it yeah and i mean where's that money coming from the the nhs spent 100 billion pounds last year i mean that it's just the kind of money which is crazy and to talk about a two billion pound or just shy of a two billion pound deficit, which is what it was last year, I mean, it doesn't really mean anything because mm. the the government is just ploughing money in as and when it needs to. It's not being run efficiently. It, it doesn't help to give a top up as and when you need it. It needs to be fixed. And uh, yeah, bring on another election. Maybe uh, maybe I should run for the um, <laughs> health minister position. A journalist going into <laughs> politics, never going to happen. Um, okay, well, thank you so much, Megan. Thank you, Harriet. Elsewhere in the magazine this week, we have uh, Emma Powell, our news editor, has written a really interesting feature about Turkey. We have a bareball column looking at the Brexit talks and how they might impact on the currency markets. Elsewhere, we had Simon Thompson running through a number of small cap investment opportunities. So do look out for that. All of that and more in All Good News Agents, £4.90. See you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. 
If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.